Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Today, our guest is Michelle DiStefano. Like many of the pioneers on our show, she has a lengthy and fascinating CV. She's a professor, author, speaker, independent consultant on innovation, technology, culture, and cross-practice cross-border initiatives. Before entering the law, Michelle had a career in advertising and marketing for some ubiquitous brand names. She brings that experience to her work with lawyers and legal teams, helping them to identify problems, design solutions, and use storytelling for buy-in and adoption. Listen in to our conversation to learn why Michelle thinks lawyers should go to marketing school, why getting everyone on the same problem plane is so critical to innovation efforts, and to hear about the unique work she's doing with Law Without Walls and the Digital Legal Exchange. Well, Michelle, thank you for joining us today. I really appreciate you spending the time to talk to us about all things legal and transformation and innovation and the stuff you're doing. So thank you very much. Glad to be here, Stephen. So the first question I have for you is, before going to law school, you spent some time in real businesses, in the real world. I don't know quite exactly how many years, but it looks like it was a pretty fulsome career. And then you chose to go to law school and things have gone after that. What was the trigger point to say, enough of this real world stuff, I want to go into the bizarro world of being a lawyer? It's so funny you say that because for me, it was just the opposite. I wanted to move from the fake world of cereal and jeans and following teens to figure out the next new fashion to the real world of principles and people and things that mattered, which is the world of law. <laughs> well, and obviously it's connected with you because you, you've been there ever since. Yeah, but, I, think, I think law and marketing are really, really similar. In what way? Well, in both, your job is to understand why people are behaving a certain way or thinking a certain way, and then try to actually develop a strategy to change the way they think or behave or prevent them from behaving a certain way or get them to behave differently. It's exactly what you do, for example, when you're trying to get people to eat Pop-Tarts instead of toaster strudel. Oh, that's fascinating. I hadn't thought about it that way. So we could send everybody to marketing school as well as going to law school, huh? Oh, I think we'd all be better lawyers if we all went to marketing school. Probably so. So a lot of your your current work and work over the last few years has revolved around transformation, change management, innovation, and we'll talk about a bunch of the things you've got going on, but what is it that triggered your interest in changing the way law is delivered and practiced and thought about? Probably frustration was my trigger. When I went to law school, I didn't envision that I was going to try and change the way we teach lawyers or the way lawyers practice. When I went to law school, I thought I wanted to be a judge. I was very wrong about that. <laughs> Trust me, I clerked for uh, my favorite judge of all time, and I learned very quickly I didn't want to be a judge. <laughs> but in terms of frustrations, I was very, very frustrated when I got into law school. And then thereafter, when I graduated, I was very frustrated with all the walls and hierarchy that. I thought was preventing collaboration and creative problem solving. 
it's a good segue into one of the topics I wanted to talk about, which is Law Without Walls, which is your virtual multidisciplinary collaboration platform that sounds a bit like Kaizen or design thinking sort of in its own unique way. I got a bunch of questions about that. And here in a second, I'll give you a chance to sort of explain in a better way than I just did exactly what it is. But one of the things I'm curious about is I know it focuses on collaboration between lawyers and other disciplines. And it strikes me that lawyers in particular, and perhaps not unique, but particular to lawyers, the instinct is not to collaborate. The instinct is to do stuff on our own and certainly not collaborate with other disciplines, you know, the non-lawyers of the world. How do you, one, do you agree with that? And two, if so, how do you build into your program the tools designed to help people overcome those instincts and, and engage in the collaborative behavior you're trying to accomplish? Well, it's definitely not done overnight. What I find, and I think most people would agree with, is that change happens over time. And one thing that's wonderful about Law Without Walls is that people in the community stay in the community. We analogize it a bit to the Hotel of California. You can check in, but you can never leave. And so what we find is people that stay in the community and take on different roles on the multidisciplinary teams really hone those new skills and they become second nature because that's the only way that you get new behavior and new change. I'm not saying that short three-day, five-day courses aren't a great jump start. They are. But putting those learnings into practice is what Law Without Walls is all about. I understand the implementation and execution is the key to actually changing behavior. But what type of tools or language or disclaimers or, okay, lawyers, stop doing this now for a while, do you talk to your folks about? Well, we set some community engagement rules, and the three rules of engagement in Law Without Walls are open heart, open mind, open door. And I know that sounds a little bit religious because I guess there's a church that uses those <laughs> same terms that I found out when I was writing my book, uh, because, of course, we always have to go look and see if someone said it before us. And we don't use those terms in the same way, but we talk a lot about lawyers' temperament and training, and we set expectations for how we talk to people. We erase the word but and the word no, which, of course, are two of the most common words used by lawyer. We talk about having an open mind and saying yes and. We are first name basis only community, and we don't use titles. We try to erase hierarchy so that when you walk into a room, virtual or otherwise, you don't know on the team who's a student, who's a practicing lawyer, who's an entrepreneur, who's an academic. And that really helps break down some barriers. So in addition to those types of, I'd say, culture norms that become tools to help lawyers change the way they think and the way they act, we also have exercises along the way. So what we do is we put these multidisciplinary teams together and we put them on a four-month journey during which they have to solve a real business of law challenge that their sponsoring entity of the team, a corporate legal department or a law firm, has given them. And over the course of 12 years, leading 235 teams, I have a slew of exercises to get us through what I call the five steps to a project of worth. So how do you unpack the problem and how do you get on the same problem plane? How do you make sure that everyone is identifying the root cause of the problem as opposed to jumping to solve the problem? How do you ideate in a way that includes everyone's voice? 
How do you make sure we're building on each other's ideas as opposed to focusing on my idea? How do you develop a business plan? So we have exercises all along the way that are designed to move the teams through the projects, but also designed to change the way they communicate, the way they present, the way they bundle and market what they're presenting. And on a go forward, all of those tools and all of those exercises are useful in daily practice and daily teaming, daily Zooming, daily problem solving. Has the program been virtual for all 12 years? Yep, we always were part virtual. So we started part virtual. And then four years after we were part virtual, we introduced an all virtual program and we had both running at the same time. And then, of course, last year, we went all virtual for all of it. Yeah, but you you had to be ahead of the game, having done it for so many years, either part or entirely virtual. That switchover must not have been as intense as it was for other organizations. I have to tell you, it was like, oh my gosh, finally the world's coming to my world. I'm in a virtual (laughs) world. I'm a virtual girl. Finally, here we are. It was so, I mean, of course I felt badly for the reasons, but then it was amazing to finally have lawyers and law professors and my family actually understanding when I used to say, no, I'm in back to backs with people from China and people from London, and I'm seeing them and talking to them on a video. They're like, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? And now that's what they're doing. So yeah. they get it. They can, they can understand the language you're talking about now. Yes. What, what would be a typical multidisciplinary team? What disciplines tend to participate in this program? Lawyers, obviously. but So, for example, let's say a team that might be sponsored by HSBC or Spotify. They would likely put someone on their team that's a practicing lawyer from one country, a practicing lawyer from another country, and then a business person, a technological person, an engineer, somebody who's head of marketing, and they select the people based on who they want to help collaborate better on a go forward. And then in addition to those three people by the sponsoring entity who play the role of team leaders, lead hackers, we have a couple mentors, and that could be a mix of somebody who's experienced in branding. So we have a branding professional on the team, and then maybe a lawyer who's now an entrepreneur as a mentor who went to law school and actually went and started a startup or started with a startup and those two people mentor and then we have law and business school students on the team as well and then of course an academic here and there it must be fascinating to be the fly on the wall watching these teams evolve and create and design solutions must be incredibly gratifying after you've done this for 12 years, you must have had some real successes in doing it. Yes, some real successes. I just as I, I worked with Microsoft for five years in a row on an internal program with their corporate and legal affairs department, professionals, business and lawyers, and ran very similar to LWOW, but internal. And what I said to them held true. You give me 10 teams, 20% of them are going to come up with a fantastic idea unbelievable idea. You're going to say, let's patent it, let's do it, or a fantastic new process that you want to implement. But another 20% are going to stink so bad that you're just going to pray that they can pull off their presentation in front of Brad Smith. (laughs) And then I'm not kidding. And then everyone else is somewhere in between. Because in an innovation journey, you're not sure you're ever going to get to the solution phase. And the reason why this is especially true with lawyers is because they jump to solve I can't tell you how many at kickoff, 
have decided they already know the solution. So we have to go backwards and really dig to get to that root cause and to understand the triparate. Usually it's three audiences involved who are impacted or the target audience. I always use Kellogg's Apple Jacks. Again, my marketing background comes to save me. I always use Kellogg's Apple Jacks as an explanation of what I mean by this. So Kellogg's Apple Jacks were named Apple Jacks because they were trying to convince moms that they were healthy. And I'm using the word moms because that was actually our target audience at the time in the 90s. It was moms of a certain age with kids of a certain age. But when we, we found out from research that kids hate apples and don't want their cereal to taste like apples. Now, the reality is the cereal doesn't have any apple in it. I would not think so. <laughs> Kellogg's Apple Jacks are Fruit Loops with a little touch of cinnamon and all the same color. So we had to actually figure out, well, how do we market to kids so they'll ask mom to buy them, but market to mom so that they'll actually think, well, these are kind of healthier than Fruit Loops. I will buy them. That's two target audiences right there. But often in a law context, there's three. There's, for example, if you're Spotify or HSBC, there's the business people, there's the customer, there's the internal legal department. Yeah, you know, in, in the projects that, that we've done at the firm, what you're talking about rings so true to me because lawyers do tend to solution jump like crazy. They walk into the door thinking they know the answer and they fail to recognize the variety of stakeholders that are affected by any particular problem or solution to a particular problem. So the folks that come out of your program must, putting aside the 20% that you think Brad is going to yell at, they're going to come out of the program with, with some fantastic skills if they can just avoid those basic mistakes, because that really, that really can screw up a project that you're trying to work on. What we hear from the participants that are from law firms or legal departments is they ask different questions. They behave differently in meetings. They want to get involved earlier. And they see a reaction immediately. This one uh, senior lawyer said to me, so weird. People keep coming up to me and saying, what have you done with Craig? <laughs> meaning, no, he's not spending all his time in LWOW and not doing his job, meaning he's doing his job differently and running his teaming differently and collaborating differently. You know, it's really interesting when I first thought of doing Law Without Walls, my main target audience was students, right? I thought there, mm -hmm. this that legal education systems was broken. It still is broken. Okay. That right. said, my we'll come focus, back to that. We'll come back to that. My focus was students and that we needed more interaction from the people out in business and in law with students so that they could learn. And what I learned by year two, year three, was the people getting maybe the most out of the Law Without Walls journey were the practicing lawyers and the business professionals who already had jobs as opposed to the aspiring lawyers. Why is that? Because this was a whole different way of learning. This was a whole different way of thinking and collaborating. And there's something about being able to practice new skills on students that feels less threatening and less risky than doing it in your day job for the first time. And I get that. It's got to be a little scary when you're doing it in your day job for the first time. You're thinking, I'm, I'm going to step out into the unknown. And lawyers don't like to look like they don't know. Right. And they don't want to oh, step out into the unknown. They have to know everything. Yes, they <laughs> do. Or at least at least they want people to think they know everything, even if they run back and look it up later. That's true. I don't know how lawyers did it before Google or Bing. Um, we had things called libraries. I don't know what to tell you. What would be an example of a project you take on 
in uh, Lowell Without Walls, without talking about a specific project, can you give us sort of an idea of what would be a, something they would work on over this three to four month period? So, for example, a law firm might want to have the team hack on a problem related to diversity and inclusion and clients' demands for more diversity and inclusion. And so our topics are generally a little vague. And what the team has to do is go in and actually streamline, narrow it down to a very small problem and small target audience. And that actually was a real topic. White and Case actually sponsored that topic. And they were the winning team this year. And the team developed a solution called Shine, which was all about helping the firm find the right talent that met the client's needs and that helped shine a light on the diversity and the diverse talents of the associates in the work allocation process. It's a really cool tool. I hope someone really makes it. It sounds fabulous. And White Case is a great firm. I suspect they'll put it to good use. So they come up with a proposal that they're going to take back to the sponsoring organization. There's, a, there's another component to this, which is the implementation in the sponsoring organization and the change management around that and how they go back and convince people other than those invested in the project. How much of your team building and work is done in, okay, you've come up with the shine, this great idea. Here's what you need to think about in terms of the internal cell and the implementation and the broader change management. So although I do that, I have done that with law firms and legal departments outside of Law Without Walls. Generally with Law Without Walls, I, I don't get involved in that aspect that much. A little bit, we've had one of our projects incubated by Fuse, mm -hmm. an incubator by Allen and Overy. And as well, HSBC worked, we worked a little bit with HSBC. They won the, they were the winners a couple of years ago in a a solution related to syndicated loans and that how messy that process is and how unauthenticated it can be. And so we worked with them on their presentations and on their pitches as they actually were trying to sell that in internally in HSBC. And I'm trying to recall if there was any others like that, but I would say that Law Without Walls has them pretty prepared because in the process of Going on this journey, you learn three different types of presentations. You learn an Ignite style presentation, which is 20 slides, self-moving, five minutes, which I think if everyone, every lawyer did that at the beginning of a meeting. It's really hard. It's really hard, but you would, yeah. it's amazing how much more focused you can get. 55 minutes, you could talk about it. Five minutes to set it up. It's brilliant. We also have the three-minute elevator speech and then a 15-minute full-fledged presentation. Mm. And we also work with them on deck, on branding, on a logo, on a tagline. So one of the pushbacks I often got from my Microsoft professionals was, why do we have to brand this thing? You know, or why do we have to do a business plan? You know, if Brad Smith thinks it's a great idea, he's going to find the money for it, no matter what it's called and no matter what it costs. And I'm like, well, if you have 30 seconds in an elevator with him, how are you going to let them know what it is? How are you going to convince them? You're going to lose them at a low with a, a tagline and a brand. Boom. And how is he going to know he wants to do it if he doesn't know how much time it's going to cost, how many people it's going to involve, whether he has the resources or not? Those, that's part of business planning, not just numbers. But it's amazing how much lawyers like to shy away from numbers. Yeah, they do. You know, people used to say, I, I don't like math, so I went to law school. And there's, there's, some, there's some truth to that. 
Let's change the topic a little bit to law schools and how they're preparing students to enter into what what is a different set of skill sets. What, What have you seen law schools doing that are helping law students prepare for this change in the way law firms are operating or laws delivered? Well, Law Without Walls has 35 law and business schools involved in it. So those 35 are actually participating in an experiential learning program and giving the students this opportunity to hone new skills, but also get jobs. Basically, it's a four-month interview with your sponsoring entity. Uh, You should be able to get a job at the end, for sure. In addition to that, tons of law schools since then have implemented hackathon-like courses or courses on innovation technology and the law as well as courses that combine business with law. At University of Miami, we started a program, a concentration called BUILT, which is business, innovation, law, and technology. So students can take certain courses from certain areas in order to end and graduate with that type of concentration. We are seeing schools focusing on experiential learning more and more than when Law Without Walls was first developed. That said, I don't think any schools are doing enough. We're not seeing wholesale change in the curriculum. We're not seeing a whole new approach to not only what we teach, but how we teach it. Yeah, but that's that's lawyers being lawyers, isn't it? Because, you know, even in the practice side of it, you're seeing change. You're seeing the use of technology. You're seeing examples like you're giving us with Laws Without Walls and the, the sponsoring entities coming to solve problems. But it's not endemic to the profession, which is unfortunate, I think, because it should be. But that's the nature of lawyers. So, Well, yeah, it's also the nature of the way law schools, at least in the U.S., are run. I think maybe one reason why some of the law schools outside of the U.S. have been able to be more nimble, they're not run the same way. I mean, we basically, if every problem you've ever experienced as a <laughs> law firm partner at a law firm, multiply that times three for a law school, because you've got a bunch of law professors who have tenure for life and nobody that can tell them what to do. And so they all have to go on committees, make proposals and get a vote. And if you don't make the vote, it doesn't change, doesn't happen. Yeah, it's interesting. What's now a very long time ago, I sat down with the dean of a great law school that will go unnamed. And we were talking about creating, this is before folks are doing stuff like like you were doing. So this is probably now 15 years ago. And he just didn't think he could get it past the professors. They had the same sort of committee vote. And it was a shame because it was, and I admit, it might have been a little out there at the time. But it doesn't sound like that dynamic has changed dramatically over the last 15 years or so. One of the ways that I convince and help lawyers with the selling in and the change management is pitching the project as a pilot, starting small, Mm -hmm. starting with a group that's eager beaver that want to do it so that the, the stakes are a lot lower. And there's some pilot, the word pilot, that just makes everybody more comfortable. It's interesting, isn't it? We do it the same way. And we found that calling it a pilot and making clear that you're prepared to adapt and correct mistakes takes all the air out of the balloon. Yep. It's marketing. See? It's all marketing. You did tell me it's all marketing. (laughs) You're absolutely right. Let's talk a little bit about the digital legal exchange, which is one of your newer ventures. What is that and what's what are the goals around that? So the Digital Legal Exchange is designed to help general counsels accelerate digital transformation of the legal department in collaboration with their business colleagues. What we're finding is that 
businesses, business entities around the world are starting to digitally transform. And general counsels know that they need to help with that digital transformation. And also, in so doing, digitally transform the legal department at the same time. The problems they're facing, however, is that sometimes they take a piecemeal approach. They focus on automating the technology or adding technology to increase efficiency, and they don't have necessarily a way to put a holistic strategy on top of it. And as well, there's the people problem, right? And the culture problem. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the tech really isn't the problem in the process or problems in the process are the problem. And things are moving so fast that it's hard to step back and figure out how do I take a legal department and digitally transform it in a very client-centric way and customer-centric way, the client being the business, the customer being the ultimate customer of the company. And how do I start running my department like a real department with a P&L and actually drive revenue, not just save costs? So general counsels are being called upon to, to basically change what they've been doing for the past 10 years and digitally transform and help the business digitally transform. And that is a lot happening at one time. So the digital legal exchange is designed to help in-house counsel work with their business colleagues to find out the gaps and help them figure out and to start develop that digital transformation roadmap. You said something I want to go back to a little bit. And it's this notion that people want the fancy solution, right? They want the program, the app they can download that's going to solve everything. When in fact, it's about people and it's about process, which seems sometimes staid and sometimes boring, you know, but it's the hard work that needs to be done. How do you create that mindset where people see that as an integral part of their approach to digital transformation? That It's about the transformation as much as it is about the digital piece. Well, the, in the Digital Legal Exchange, we have a workshop where we have some key members from the in-house legal department, but also the business. And we do a digital alignment survey, which we do with the business and legal. And that's very eye-opening for them when they start to see that they're prioritizing things that they think are very important and the business isn't prioritizing those things. And or they are very good at certain things that the business actually doesn't care as much about. And they're not getting as high scores on the things that the business does care about. That's a real great eye opener. Irina Gupta and I worked together for over a year on developing and fine tuning that tool for the digital legal exchange. And it works wonders. It's scary, right? Um, mm -hmm. And it's not always positive, but it helps jumpstart the conversation. And then also examples. You have to give examples of here's what a legal department was doing. Here's when they went and focused on the client and focused on the client's experience with the legal department. Here's where they found all the pain points. Here was their better solution. And most legal departments already have, you know, the graveyard of tools, right? The tools that the litigators want that don't work for everybody else because they have to move all their emails every week that's taking all this time just so they don't get a discovery request or the timekeeping tool that's really made for a law firm that, that's in a legal department that actually can't read your time if you're on a different monitor who doesn't work with multiple monitors. So you've got all this stuff going on. So what we do at the Digital Legal Exchange is this, this alignment survey, and then we have a three-hour workshop where we really try to open their eyes to a new way to approach, a holistic way to approach digital transformation instead of being so piecemeal. Stephen, have you seen the movie The Founder? 
No, I have not. So there's this great video clip that I always play for the participants where they are talking about how it's a hamburger joint. They sell hamburgers and they're convinced that clients want their burgers faster. Now they're going to make more money if they make it faster too. So they go out onto a tennis court and they map out their kitchen and they map it out and change things three times. Like the first time they're all bumping into each other. The second time it's a little better. And then the third time they're like, it's like a dance and they're playing the music and they're just thrilled because they decrease the time to a hamburger. I mean, if you analogize this to like time to contract, right? We're mm-hmm. decreasing the time. This is exactly what they want, right? So they open up. What they did though was get rid of the, back then that was in the 50s where people would come out to your car and take your order. And then, you know, you put your order on your window. Mm-hmm. Wow, all the clients were so mad. They hated it because they had, they had to get out of their car to go order their burger. So they didn't take a client-centric approach. They only focused on internally what they needed to fix. So that's another thing we see all the time is even when you have the general counsel's understanding that it's about process, they're only focusing on the process from their own perspective and their assumption of what the client wants and what they prioritize, as opposed to, wait a minute, wait a minute, speed to market's not the only thing. And especially if now they have to do it all automated and they can't talk to a person, maybe that's not what the client wants. So the digital legal exchange is designed to jumpstart the journey and help them start in the right way. Evidently, like 75% of change management efforts fail. And the research shows that the number one reason why they fail is because they fail to do the right first thing first. Right. So that's what the digital legal exchange is designed to do. Focus them on what's the first thing you should do. Because if you don't start right, you're not going to end right. That's been our experience as well, that you, it sort of goes back to the conversation we had about the pilot program, where if you don't start with the right sort of small step, and everybody wants to have the big bang, right? Everybody wants to, they just want to be done with it. But if you don't start with the right first step, you're not going to take the right last step either. The other, the other thing that comes through in, in what you're talking about, which I find fascinating, is sort of the, the power of storytelling in the change process, in the education process. You know, these examples you're giving are, I, they have to be powerful tools for you guys to use because it's, it's, they've been, storytelling's been a powerful part of our change management process. I assume it's been the same for you. Yes, definitely. And in fact, in Law Without Walls, everybody has to write three consumer stories for their problems. But I mean, I don't let anyone ideate for so long. I say to them, ah, no solutions. I will, I will cut you off. I cut anybody off. I don't care how senior you are. So we're all on the same plane. Problem playing, going in the same direction, and we have our consumer stories written where you may, you move me, we're not ideating. And that is such an important, important piece of any type of change, understanding who's impacted and writing out those consumer stories. Yeah, particularly with lawyers, because they respond to real world examples. And, you know, you, you begin to talk about things in abstract, and they'll pick you to death. But if you can drop it down to a specific story, here's what the the kitchen example from the founder is a fabulous. I just love that. I love that story. And it, it's it's got to really drive home those points to people, particularly to the lawyers. That That's fabulous. Yeah. We have one of the exercises or tools that I use in LWOW. I call it problem trip mapping. I want you to pretend your problem, you're going on a trip in a bus, and we're going to map out the problem. 
and everybody that's involved in the process along the problem, because that's how we identify all the constituencies that are impacted, the stakeholders. And I actually assign people roles. Okay, you're the backseat driver. You're the map navigator. You're the driver. And we go through and you, it takes them forever because one person's view of the problem isn't the whole problem. And I often find teams, they start in the middle. And I said, wait, I don't, I don't think you started at the beginning of the problem. You started when the, the supply people got the contract. Let's back up. Who asked for it? You know, when did it first, where's the template? So we work a lot on that. Yeah, they do tend to start in the middle, don't they? And getting people to back up is always a challenge. So before I let you go, I've got a couple last questions. You wrote a book called New Suits? Yes. Well, I didn't write the whole thing. I wrote a couple chapters in it. wrote a couple it, chapters and with other editors. And it's got some great contributors to it. Did you really get Dave Navarro to read the book? I see he gave a quote. Yeah. I think I, that I is think the coolest so. thing in the world. Yes. Yep. That's what I'm going to say. It's the coolest thing in the world. How do you give an answer without an answer? There you know, you Gunther, go. Well my Gunther, my co-editor, knew all these famous people. That's how we got a famous artist to do our book cover. And Your book cover is amazing. Mm-hmm. It's really Check it out. For those of you that don't know, it's someone pretty famous who's done some other pretty famous rock star. Yeah. Covers. Yeah. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a fascinating conversation. If people want to know more about Law Without Walls, how do they and Digital Legal Exchange, how do they find you? You can find me at movelaw.com. You can find more information at dlex.org and lwow.org for Law Without Walls. And check out Michelle's books, both of them, because they're fabulous. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.